You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Chapter 8 of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 8. Plumstead Episcopi. The reader must now be requested to visit the rectory of Plumstead Episcopi, and as it is as yet still early morning, to ascend again with us into the bedroom of the archdeacon. The mistress of the mansion was at her toilet, on which we will not dwell with profane eyes, but proceed into a small inner room, where the doctor dressed and kept his boots and sermons. And here we will take our stand, premising that the door of the room was so open as to admit of a conversation between our reverend Adam and his valued Eve. "'It's all your own fault, Archdeacon,' said the latter. I told you from the beginning how it would end, and Papa has no one to thank but you. Good gracious, my dear, said the doctor, appearing at the door of his dressing-room with his face and head enveloped in the rough towel which he was violently using. How can you say so? I'm doing my very best. I wish you had never done so much, said the lady, interrupting him. If you'd just have let John Bold come and go there as he and Papa liked, he and Eleanor would have been married by this time, and we should not have heard one word about all this affair. But, my dear, oh, it's all very well, Archdeacon, and of course you're right. I don't for a moment think you'll ever admit that you could be wrong, but the fact is you've brought this young man down upon Papa by huffing him as you've done. But, my love, and all because you didn't like John Bold for a brother-in-law. How is she ever to do better? Papa hasn't got a shilling, and though Eleanor is well enough, she has not at all a taking style of beauty. I'm sure I don't know how she's to do better than marry John Bold, or as well indeed, added the anxious sister, giving the last twist to her last shoestring. Dr. Grantly felt keenly the injustice of this attack. But what could he say? He certainly had huffed John Bold, he certainly had objected to him as a brother-in-law, and a very few months ago the very idea had excited his wrath. But now matters were changed. John Bold has shown his power, and though he was as odious as ever to the archdeacon, power is always respected. 
and the reverend dignitary began to think that such an alliance might not have been imprudent nevertheless his motto was still no surrender he would still fight it out he believed confidently in oxford in the bench of bishops in sir abraham haphazard and in himself and it was only when alone with his wife that doubts of defeat ever beset him he once more tried to communicate this confidence to mrs grantly and for the twentieth time began to tell her of sir abraham oh sir abraham said she collecting all her house keys into her basket before she descended sir abraham won't get eleanor a husband sir abraham won't get papa another income when he has been warreted out of the hospital mark what i tell you archdeacon while you and sir abraham are fighting papa will lose his preferment and what will you do then with him and eleanor on your hands besides who's to pay sir abraham i suppose he won't take the case up for nothing and so the lady descended to family worship among her children and servants, the pattern of a good and prudent wife. Dr. Grantly was blessed with a happy, thriving family. There were first three boys, now at home from school for the holidays. They were called, respectively, Charles James, Henry, and Samuel. The two younger, there were five in all, were girls. The elder, Florinda, bore the name of the Archbishop of York's wife, whose godchild she was, and the younger had been christened Grizel, after a sister of the Archbishop of Canterbury. The boys were all clever, and gave good promise of being well able to meet the cares and trials of the world. And yet they were not alike in their dispositions, and each had his individual character, and each his separate admirers among the doctor's friends. Charles James was an exact and careful boy. He never committed himself. He knew well how much was expected from the eldest son of the Archdeacon of Barchester, and was therefore mindful not to mix too freely with other boys. He had not the great talents of his younger brothers, but he exceeded them in judgment and propriety of demeanor. His fault, if he had one, was an over-attention to words instead of things. There was a thought too much finesse about him, and, as even his father sometimes told him, he was too fond of a compromise. The second was the archdeacon's favorite son, and Henry was indeed a brilliant boy. The versatility of his genius was surprising, and the visitors at Plumstead Episcopi were often amazed at the marvelous manner in which he would, when called on, adapt his capacity to apparently most uncongenial pursuits. He appeared once before a large circle as Luther the Reformer, and delighted them with the perfect manner in which he assumed the character, and within three days he again astonished them by acting the part of a capuchin friar to the very life. For this last exploit his father gave him a golden guinea, and his brothers said the reward had been promised beforehand in the event of the performance being successful. He was also sent on a tour into Devonshire, a treat which the lad was most anxious of enjoying. His father's friends there, however, did not appreciate his talents, and sad accounts were sent home of the perversity of his nature. He was a most courageous lad, game to the backbone. It was soon known, both at home where he lived, and within some miles of Barchester Cathedral, and also at Westminster, where he was at school, that young Henry could box well, and would never own himself beat. Other boys would fight while they had a leg to stand on, but he would fight with no leg at all. 
those backing him would sometimes think him crushed by the weight of blows and faint with loss of blood and his friends would endeavour to withdraw him from the contest but no henry never gave in was never weary of the battle the ring was the only element in which he seemed to enjoy himself and while other boys were happy in the number of their friends he rejoiced most in the multitude of his foes his relations could not but admire his pluck but they sometimes were forced to regret that he was inclined to be a bully and those not so partial to him as his father was observed with pain that though he could fawn to the masters and the archdeacon's friends he was imperious and masterful to the servants and the poor but perhaps samuel was the general favourite and dear little soapy as he was familiarly called was as engaging a child as ever fond mother petted he was soft and gentle in his manners and attractive in his speech the tone of his voice was melody and every action was a grace unlike his brothers he was courteous to all he was affable to the lowly and meek even to the very scullery maid he was a boy of great promise minding his books and delighting the hearts of his masters his brothers however were not particularly fond of him they would complain to their mother that soapy's civility all meant something they thought that his voice was too often listened to at plumstead episcopi and evidently feared that as he grew up he would have more weight in the house than either of them there was therefore a sort of agreement among them to put young soapy down this however was not so easy to be done samuel though young was sharp he could not assume the stiff decorum of charles james nor could he fight like henry but he was a perfect master of his own weapons and contrived in the teeth of both of them to hold the place which he had assumed henry declared that he was a false cunning creature and charles james though he always spoke of him as his dear brother samuel was not slow to say a word against him when opportunity offered to speak the truth samuel was a cunning boy and those even who loved him best could not but own that for one so young he was too adroit in choosing his words and too skilled in modulating his voice the two little girls florinda and grizel were nice little girls enough but they did not possess the strong sterling qualities of their brothers their voices were not often heard at plumstead episcopi they were bashful and timid by nature slow to speak before company even when asked to do so and though they looked very nice in their clean white muslin frocks and pink sashes they were but little noticed by the archdeacon's visitors whatever of submissive humility may have appeared in the gait and visage of the archdeacon during his colloquy with his wife in the sanctum of their dressing-rooms was dispelled as he entered his breakfast parlour with erect head and powerful step in the presence of a third person he assumed the lord and master and that wise and talented lady too well knew the man to whom her lot for life was bound to stretch her authority beyond the point at which it would be borne strangers at plumstead episcopi when they saw the imperious brow with which he commanded silence from the large circle of visitors children and servants who came together in the morning to hear him read the word of god and watched how meekly that wife seated herself behind her basket of keys with a little girl on each side as she caught that commanding glance strangers i say seeing this could little guess that some fifteen minutes since she had stoutly held her ground against him hardly allowing him to open his mouth in his own defence but such is the tact and talent of women 
and now let us observe the well-furnished breakfast-parlour at plumstead episcopi and the comfortable air of all the belongings of the rectory comfortable they certainly were but neither gorgeous nor even grand indeed considering the money that had been spent there the eye and taste might have been better served there was an air of heaviness about the rooms which might have been avoided without any sacrifice of propriety colours might have been better chosen and lights more perfectly diffused but perhaps in doing so the thorough clerical aspect of the whole might have been somewhat marred at any rate it was not without ample consideration that those thick dark costly carpets were put down those embossed but sombre papers hung up those heavy curtains draped so as to half exclude the light of the sun nor were these old-fashioned chairs bought at a price far exceeding that now given for more modern goods without a purpose the breakfast surface on the table was equally costly and equally plain the apparent object had been to spend money without obtaining brilliancy or splendour the urn was of thick and solid silver as were also the teapot coffee-pot cream ewer and sugar bowl the cups were old dim dragon china worth about a pound apiece but very despicable in the eyes of the uninitiated the silver forks were so heavy as to be disagreeable to the hand and the bread-basket was of a weight really formidable to any but robust persons the tea consumed was the very best the coffee the very blackest the cream the very thickest there was dry toast and buttered toast muffins and crumpets hot bread and cold bread white bread and brown bread homemade bread and baker's bread wheaten bread and oaten bread and if there be other breads than these they were there there were eggs in napkins and crispy bits of bacon under silver covers and there were little fishes in a little box and deviled kidneys frizzling on a hot water dish which by the by were placed closely contiguous to the plate of the worthy archdeacon himself over and above this on a snow-white napkin spread upon the sideboard was a huge ham and a huge sirloin the latter having laden the dinner-table on the previous evening such was the ordinary fare at plumstead episcopi and yet i have never found the rectory a pleasant house the fact that man shall not live by bread alone seemed to be somewhat forgotten and noble as was the appearance of the host and sweet and good-natured as was the face of the hostess talented as were the children and excellent as were the viands and the wines in spite of these attractions i generally found the rectory somewhat dull after breakfast the archdeacon would retire of course to his clerical pursuits mrs grantly i presume inspected her kitchen though she had a first-rate housekeeper with sixty pounds a year and attended to the lessons of florinda and grizel though she had an excellent governess with thirty pounds a year but at any rate she disappeared and i never could make companions of the boys charles james though he always looked as though there were something in him never seemed to have much to say and what he did say he would always unsay the next minute he told me once that he considered cricket on the whole to be a gentlemanlike game for boys provided they would play without running about and that fives also was a seemly game so that those who played it never heeded themselves henry once quarrelled with me for taking his sister grizel's part in a contest between them as to the best mode of using a watering-pot for the garden flowers and from that day to this he has not spoken to me though he speaks at me often enough 
For half an hour or so I certainly did like Sammy's gentle speeches, but one gets tired of honey, and I found that he preferred the more admiring listeners whom he met in the kitchen garden and back precincts of the establishment. Besides, I think I once caught Sammy fibbing. On the whole, therefore, I found the rectory a dull house, though it must be admitted that everything there was of the very best. After breakfast, on the morning of which we are writing, the archdeacon, as usual, retired to his study, intimating that he was going to be very busy, but that he would see Mr. Chadwick if he called. On entering this sacred room, he carefully opened the paper case on which he was wont to compose his favorite sermon, and spread on it a fair sheet of paper and one partly written on. He then placed his inkstand, looked at his pen, and folded his blotting paper. Having done so, he got up again from his seat, stood with his back to the fireplace, and yawned comfortably, stretching out vastly his huge arms and opening his burly chest. He then walked across the room and locked the door, and having so prepared himself, he threw himself into his easy chair, took from a secret drawer beneath his table a volume of Rabelais, and began to amuse himself with the witty mischief of Panurge, and so passed the archdeacon's morning on that day. He was left undisturbed at his studies for an hour or two when a knock came to the door, and Mr. Chadwick was announced. Rabelais retired into the secret drawer, the easy-chair seemed knowingly to betake itself off, and when the archdeacon quickly undid his bolt he was discovered by the steward working, as usual, for that church of which he was so useful a pillar. Mr. Chadwick had just come from London, and was therefore known to be the bearer of important news. "'We've got Sir Abraham's opinion at last,' said Mr. Chadwick, as he seated himself. "'Well, well, well!' exclaimed the archdeacon impatiently. "'Oh, it's as long as my arm,' said the other. "'It can't be told in a word, but you can read it.' And he handed him a copy, in heaven knows how many spun-out folios, of the opinion which the attorney-general had managed to cram on the back and sides of the case as originally submitted to him. "'The upshot is,' said Chadwick, "'that there's a screw loose in their case, and we had better do nothing.' They're proceeding against Mr. Harding and myself, and Sir Abraham holds that under the wording of the will, and subsequent arrangements legally sanctioned, Mr. Harding and I are only paid servants. The defendants should have been either the Corporation of Barchester, or possibly the chapter of your father. Whoo! said the archdeacon. So Master Bold is on the wrong scent, is he? That's Sir Abraham's opinion, but any scent almost would be a wrong scent. Mr. Abraham thinks that if they'd taken the corporation or the chapter, we could have baffled them. The bishop, he thinks, would be the surest shot, but even there we could plead that the bishop is only a visitor, and that he has never made himself a consenting party to the performance of other duties. That's quite clear, said the archdeacon. Not quite so clear, said the other. You see, the will says, My lord the bishop, being graciously pleased to see that due justice be done. Now, it may be a question whether, in accepting and administering the patronage, your father has not accepted also the other duties assigned. It is doubtful, however, but even if they hit that nail, and they are far off from that yet, the point is so nice, as Sir Abraham says, that you would force them into £15,000 cost before they could bring it to an issue. And where's that sum of money to come from? 
the archdeacon rubbed his hands with delight he had never doubted the justice of his case but he had begun to have some dread of unjust success on the part of his enemies it was delightful to him thus to hear that their cause was surrounded with such rocks and shoals such causes of shipwreck unseen by the landsman's eye but visible enough to the keen eyes of practical law mariners how wrong his wife was to wish that bold should marry eleanor bold why if he should be ass enough to persevere he would be a beggar before he knew whom he was at law with that's excellent chadwick that's excellent i told you sir abraham was the man for us and he put down on the table the copy of the opinion and patted it fondly don't you let that be seen though archdeacon who i not for worlds said the doctor people will talk you know archdeacon of course of course said the doctor because if that gets abroad it would teach them how to fight their own battle quite true said the doctor no one here in barchester ought to see that but you and i archdeacon no no certainly no one else said the archdeacon pleased with the closeness of the confidence no one else shall mrs grantly is very interested in the matter i know said mr chadwick did the archdeacon wink or did he not i am inclined to think that he did not quite wink but that without such perhaps unseemly gesture he communicated to mr chadwick with the corner of his eye intimation that deep as was mrs grantly's interest in the matter it should not procure for her a perusal of that document and at the same time he partly opened the small drawer above spoken of deposited the paper on the volume of rabelais and showed to mr chadwick the nature of the key which guarded these hidden treasures the careful steward then expressed himself contented ah vain man he could fasten up his rabelais and other things secret with all the skill of brahma or of chubb but where could he fasten up the key which solved these mechanical mysteries it is probable to us that the contents of no drawer in that house were unknown to its mistress and we think moreover that she was entitled to all such knowledge but said mr chadwick we must of course tell your father and mr harding so much of sir abraham's opinion as will satisfy them that the matter is doing well oh certainly yes of course said the doctor you'd better let them know that sir abraham is of opinion that there's no case at any rate against mr harding and that as the action is worded at present it must fall to the ground they must be non-suited if they carry on you'd better tell mr harding that sir abraham is clearly of opinion that he's only a servant and as such not liable or if you like it i'll see mr harding myself oh i must see him to-morrow and my father too and i'll explain to them exactly so much you won't go before lunch mr chadwick well if you will you must for i know your time is precious and he shook hands with the diocesan steward and bowed him out the archdeacon had again recourse to his drawer and twice read through the essence of sir abraham haphazard's law-enlightened and law-bewildered brains it was very clear that to sir abraham the justice of the old men's claim or the justice of mr harding's defence were ideas that had never presented themselves a legal victory over an opposing party was the service for which sir abraham was as he imagined to be paid and that he according to his lights had diligently laboured to achieve and with probable hope of success of the intense desire which mr harding felt to be assured on fit authority that he was wronging no man that he was entitled in true equity to his income 
that he might sleep at night without pangs of conscience, that he was no robber, no spoiler of the poor, that he and all the world might be openly convinced that he was not the man which the Jupiter had described him to be. Of such longings on the part of Mr. Harding, Sir Abraham was entirely ignorant. Nor, indeed, could it be looked on as part of his business to gratify such desires. Such was not the system on which his battles were fought and victories gained. Success was his object, and he was generally successful. He conquered his enemies by their weakness rather than by his own strength, and it had been found almost impossible to make up a case in which Sir Abraham, as an antagonist, would not find a flaw. The archdeacon was delighted with the closeness of the reasoning. To do him justice, it was not a selfish triumph that he desired. He would personally lose nothing by defeat, or at least what he might lose did not actuate him. But neither was it love of justice which made him so anxious, nor even mainly solitude for his father-in-law. He was fighting a part of a never-ending battle against a never-conquered foe, that of the church against its enemies. He knew Mr. Harding could not pay all the expense of these doings, for these long opinions of Sir Abraham's, these causes to be pleaded, these speeches to be made, these various courts through which the case was, he presumed, to be dragged. He knew that he and his father must at least bear the heavier portion of this tremendous cost, but to do the archdeacon justice he did not recoil from this. He was a man fond of obtaining money, greedy of a large income, but open-handed enough in expending it, and it was a triumph to him to foresee the success of this measure, although he might be called on to pay so dearly for it himself. End of chapter 8 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota Chapter 9 of The Warden this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope Chapter 9 The Conference On the following morning the archdeacon was with his father betimes, and a note was sent down to the warden begging his attendance at the palace. Dr. Grantly, as he cogitated on the matter, leaning back in his brigham as he journeyed into Barchester, felt that it would be difficult to communicate his own satisfaction either to his father or his father-in-law. He wanted success on his own side and discomfiture on that of his enemies. The bishop wanted peace on the subject, a settled peace if possible, but peace at any rate till the short remainder of his own days had spun itself out. Mr. Harding required not only success and peace, but he also demanded that he might stand justified before the world. The bishop, however, was comparatively easy to deal with, and before the arrival of the other, the dutiful son had persuaded his father that all was going on well, and then the warden arrived. It was Mr. Harding's wont, whenever he spent a morning at the palace, to seat himself immediately at the bishop's elbow, the bishop occupying a huge armchair fitted up with candlesticks, a reading-table, a drawer, and other paraphernalia, the position of which chair was never moved, summer or winter, and when, as usual, the archdeacon was there also, he confronted the two elders, who thus were enabled to fight the battle against him together, and together submit to defeat, for such was their constant fate. Our warden now took his accustomed place, having greeted his son-in-law as he entered, and then affectionately inquired after his friend's health. 
there is a gentleness about the bishop to which the soft womanly affection of mr harding particularly endeared itself and it was quaint to see how the two mild old priests pressed each other's hand and smiled and made little signs of love sir abraham's opinion has come at last began the archdeacon mr harding had heard so much and was most anxious to know the result it is quite favourable said the bishop pressing his friend's arm i'm so glad mr harding looked at the mighty bearer of the important news for confirmation of these glad tidings yes said the archdeacon sir abraham has given most minute attention to the case indeed i knew he would most minute attention and his opinion is and as to his opinion on such a subject being correct no one who knows sir abraham's character can doubt his opinion is that they haven't got a leg to stand on but as how archdeacon why in the first place but you're no lawyer warden and i doubt you won't understand it the gist of the matter is this under hiram's will two paid guardians have been selected for the hospital the law will say two paid servants and you and i won't quarrel with the name at any rate i will not if i am one of the servants said mr harding a rose you know yes yes said the archdeacon impatient of poetry at such a time well two paid servants will say one to look after the men and the other to look after the money you and chadwick are these two servants and whether either of you will be paid too much or too little more or less in fact than the founder willed it's as clear as daylight that no one can foul foul of either of you for receiving an allotted stipend that does seem clear said the bishop who had winced visibly at the words servants and stipend which however appeared to have caused no uneasiness to the archdeacon quite clear said he and very satisfactory in point of fact it being necessary to select such servants for the use of the hospital the pay to be given to them must depend on the rate of pay for such services according to their market value at the period in question and those who manage the hospital must be the only judges of this and who does manage the hospital asked the warden oh let them find that out that's another question the action is brought against you and chadwick that's your defence and a perfect and full defence it is now that i think very satisfactory well said the bishop looking inquiringly up into his friend's face who sat silent a while and apparently not so well satisfied and conclusive continued the archdeacon if they press it to a jury which they won't do no twelve men in england will take five minutes to decide against them but according to that said mr harding i might as well have sixteen hundred years eight if the managers choose to allot it to me and as i am one of the managers if not the chief manager myself that can hardly be a just arrangement ah oh, well all that's nothing to the question the question is whether this intruding fellow and a lot of cheating attorneys and pestilent dissenters are to interfere with an arrangement which every one knows is essentially just and serviceable to the church pray don't let us be splitting hairs and then amongst ourselves or there'll never be an end to the cause or the cost mr harding again sat silent for a while during which the bishop once and again pressed his arm and looked in his face to see if he could catch a gleam of a contented and eased mind 
but there was no such gleam and the poor warden continued playing sad dirges on invisible stringed instruments in all manner of positions he was ruminating in his mind on this opinion of sir abraham looking to it wearily and earnestly for satisfaction but finding none at last he said did you see the opinion archdeacon the archdeacon said he had not that was to say he had that was he had not seen the opinion itself he had seen what had been called a copy but he could not say whether of a whole or part nor could he say that what he had seen were the epissima verba of the great man himself but what he had seen contained exactly the decision which he had announced and which he again declared to be to his mind extremely satisfactory i should like to see the opinion said the warden that is a copy of it well i suppose you can if you make a point of it but i don't see the use myself of course it is essential that the purport of it should not be known and it is therefore unadvisable to multiply copies why should it not be known asked the warden what a question for a man to ask said the archdeacon throwing up his hands in token of his surprise but it is like you a child is not more innocent than you are in matters of business can't you see that if we tell them that no action will lie against you but that one may possibly lie against some other person or persons that we shall be putting weapons into their hands and be teaching them how to cut our own throats the warden again sat silent and the bishop again looked at him wistfully the only thing we have now to do continued the archdeacon is to remain quiet hold our peace and let them play their own game as they please we're not to make known then said the warden that we have consulted the attorney-general and that we are advised by him that the founder's will is fully and fairly carried out god bless my soul said the archdeacon how odd it is that you will not see that all we are to do is to do nothing why should we say anything about the founder's will we are in possession and we know that they are not in a position to put us out surely that is enough for the present mr harding rose from his seat and paced thoughtfully up and down the library the bishop the while watching him painfully at every turn and the archdeacon continuing to pour forth his convictions that the affair was in a state to satisfy any prudent mind and the jupiter said the warden stopping suddenly oh the jupiter answered the other the jupiter can break no bones you must bear with that there is much of course which it is our bounden duty to bear it cannot be all roses for us here and the archdeacon looked exceedingly moral besides the matter is too trivial of too little general interest to be mentioned again in the jupiter unless we stir up the subject and the archdeacon again looked exceedingly knowing and worldly wise the warden continued his walk the hard and stinging words of that newspaper article each one of which had thrust a thorn as it were into his inmost soul were fresh in his memory he had read it more than once word by word and what was worse he fancied it was as well known to every one as to himself was he to be looked on as the unjust griping priest he had been there described 
was he to be pointed at as the consumer of the bread of the poor and to be allowed no means of refuting such charges of clearing his begrimed name of standing innocent in the world as hitherto he had stood was he to bear all this to receive as usual his now hated income and be known as one of those greedy priests who by their rapacity have brought disgrace on their church and why why should he bear all this why should he die for he felt that he could not live under such a weight of obloquy as he paced up and down the room he resolved in his misery and enthusiasm that he could with pleasure if he were allowed give up his place abandon his pleasant home leave the hospital and live poorly happily and with an unsullied name on the small remainder of his means he was a man somewhat shy of speaking of himself even before those who knew him best and whom he loved the most but at last it burst forth from him and with a somewhat jerking eloquence he declared that he could not would not bear this misery any longer if it can be proved said he at last that i have a just and honest right to this as god well knows i always deemed i had if this salary or stipend be really my due i'm not less anxious than another to retain it i have the well-being of my child to look to i'm too old to miss without some pain the comforts to which i've been used and i am as others are anxious to prove to the world that i have been right and to uphold the place i have held but i cannot do it at such a cost as this i cannot bear this could you tell me to do so and he appealed almost in tears to the bishop who had left his chair and was now leaning on the warden's arm as he stood on the further side of the table facing the archdeacon could you tell me to sit there at ease indifferent and satisfied while such things as these are said loudly of me in the world the bishop could feel for him and sympathize with them but he could not advise him he could only say no no you shall be asked to do nothing that is painful you shall do just what your heart tells you to be right you shall do whatever you think best yourself theophilus don't advise him pray don't advise the warden to do anything which is painful but the archdeacon though he could not sympathize could advise and he saw that the time had come when it behooved him to do so in a somewhat peremptory manner why my lord there are two ways of giving advice there is advice that may be good for the present day and there is advice that may be good for days to come now i cannot bring myself to give the former if it be incompatible with the other no 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 i suppose not said the bishop reseating himself and shading his face with his hands mr harding sat down with his back to the further wall playing to himself some air fitted for so calamitous an occasion and the archdeacon set out his say standing with his back to the empty fireplace it is not to be supposed but that much pain will spring out of this unnecessarily raised question we must all have foreseen that, and the matter has in no wise gone on worse than we expected. But it will be weak, 
yes, and wicked also, to abandon the cause and own ourselves wrong, because the injury is painful. It is not only ourselves we have to look to. To a certain extent, the interest of the church is in our keeping. Should it be found that one after another of those who hold preferment abandon it whenever it might be attacked, is it not plain that such attacks would be renewed till nothing was left us? And that if so deserted, the Church of England must fall to the ground altogether? If this be true of many, it is true of one. Were you, accused as you now are, to throw up the wardenship, and to relinquish the preferment which is your property, with the vain object of proving yourself disinterested, you would fail in that object. You would inflict a desperate blow on your brother clergyman. You would encourage every cantankerous dissenter in England to make a similar charge against some source of clerical revenue, and you would do your best to dishearten those who are most anxious to defend you and uphold your position. I can fancy nothing more weak or more wrong. It is not that you think that there is any justice in these charges, or that you doubt your own right to the wardenship. You are convinced of your honesty, and yet would yield to them through cowardice. Cowardice, said the bishop, expostulating. Mr. Harding sat unmoved, gazing on his son-in-law. Well, would it not be cowardice? Would he not do so because he is afraid to endure the evil things which will be falsely spoken of him? Would not that be cowardice? And now let us see the extent of the evil which you dread. The Jupiter publishes an article which a great many, no doubt, will read. But of those who understand the subject, how many will believe the Jupiter? Everyone knows what its object is. It has taken up the case against Lord Guildford and against the Dean of Rochester, and that against half a dozen bishops. And does not everyone know that it would take up any case of the kind, right or wrong, false or true, with known justice or known injustice, if by doing so it could further its own views? Does not all the world know this of the Jupiter? Who that really knows you will think the worse of you for what the Jupiter says? And why care for those who do not know you? I will say nothing of your own comfort, but I do say that you could not be justified in throwing up in a fit of passion, for such it would be, the only maintenance that Eleanor has. And if you did so, if you really did vacate the wardenship and submit to ruin, what would that profit you? If you have no future right to the income, you have had no past right to it, and the very act of your abandoning your position would create a demand for repayment of that which you have already received and spent. The poor warden groaned as he sat perfectly still, looking up at the hard-hearted orator who thus tormented him, and the bishop echoed the sound faintly from behind his hands. But the archdeacon cared little for such signs of weakness, and completed his exhortation. But let us suppose the office to be left vacant, and that your own troubles concerning it were over. Would that satisfy you? Are your only aspirations in the matter confined to yourself and family? I know they are not. I know you are as anxious as any of us for the church to which we belong, and what a grievous blow would such an act of apostasy give her. You owe it to the church of which you are a member and a minister to bear with this affliction, however severe it may be. 
You owe it to my father, who instituted you to support his rights. You owe it to those who preceded you to assert the legality of their position. You owe it to those who are to come after you to maintain uninjured for them that which you received uninjured from others. And you owe to us all the unflinching assistance of perfect brotherhood in this matter, so that upholding one another we may support our great cause without blushing and without disgrace. And so the archdeacon ceased and stood self-satisfied, watching the effect of his spoken wisdom. The warden felt himself, to a certain extent, stifled. He would have given the world to get himself out into the open air without speaking to or noticing those who were in the room with him. But this was impossible. He could not leave without saying something, and he felt himself confounded by the archdeacon's eloquence. There was a heavy, unfeeling, unanswerable truth in what he had said. There was so much practical but odious common sense in it, that he neither knew how to assent or to differ. If it were necessary for him to suffer, he felt that he could endure without complaint and without cowardice, providing that he was self-satisfied of the justice of his own cause. What he could not endure was that he should be accused by others and not acquitted by himself. Doubting, as he had begun to doubt, the justice of his own position in the hospital, he knew that his own self-confidence would not be restored because Mr. Bold had been in error as to some legal form, nor could he be satisfied to escape because, through some legal fiction, he who received the greatest benefit from the hospital might be considered only as one of its servants. The archdeacon's speech had silenced him, stupefied him, annihilated him, anything but satisfied him. With the bishop it fared not much better. He did not discern clearly how things were, but he saw enough to know that a battle was to be prepared for, a battle that would destroy his few remaining comforts and bring him with sorrow to the grave. The warden still sat and still looked at the archdeacon, till his thoughts fixed themselves wholly on the means of escape from his present position, and he felt like a bird fascinated by gazing on a snake. I hope you agree with me, said the archdeacon at last, breaking the dread silence. My lord, I hope you agree with me. Oh, what a sigh the bishop gave. My lord, I hope you agree with me, again repeated the merciless tyrant. Yes, I suppose so, groaned the poor old man slowly. And you, warden? Mr. Harding was now stirred to action. He must speak and move, so he got up and took one turn before he answered. "'Do not press me for an answer just at present. I will do nothing lightly in the matter, and of whatever I do, I will give you and the bishop notice.' And so, without another word, he took his leave, escaping quickly through the palace hall and down the lofty steps, nor did he breathe freely till he found himself alone under the huge elms of the silent close. Here he walked long and slowly, thinking on his case with a troubled air, and trying in vain to confute the archdeacon's argument. He then went home, resolved to bear it all. Ignominy, suspense, disgrace, 
self-doubt and heart-burning, and to do as those would have him, who he still believed were most fit and most able to counsel him aright. End of chapter 9 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota Chapter 10 of The Warden This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope Chapter 10 Tribulation Mr. Harding was a sadder man than he had ever yet been when he returned to his own house. He had been wretched enough on that well-remembered morning when he was forced to expose before his son-in-law the publisher's account for ushering into the world his dear book of sacred music, when after making such payments as he could do unassisted, he found that he was a debtor of more than three hundred pounds. But his sufferings, then, were as nothing to his present misery. Then he had done wrong, and he knew it, and he was able to resolve that he would not sin in like manner again. But now he could make no resolution, and comfort himself by no promises of firmness. He had been forced to think that his lot had placed him in a false position, and he was about to maintain that position against the opinion of the world and against his own convictions. He had read with pity, amounting almost to horror, the strictures which had appeared from time to time against the Earl of Guildford as Master of St. Cross, and the invectives that had been heaped on rich diocesan dignitaries and overgrown sinecure pluralists. In judging of them, he judged leniently. The whole bias of his profession had taught him to think that they were more sinned against than sinning, and that the animosity with which they had been pursued was venomous and unjust. But he had not the less regarded their plight as most miserable. His hair had stood on end and his flesh had crept as he read the things which had been written. He had wondered how men could live under such a load of disgrace how they could face their fellow-creatures while their names were bandied about so injuriously and so publicly. And now this lot was to be his. He, that shy, retiring man, who had so comforted himself in the hidden obscurity of his lot, who had so enjoyed the unassuming warmth of his own little corner. He was now dragged forth into the glaring day, and gibbeted before ferocious multitudes. He entered his own house a crestfallen, humiliated man, without a hope of overcoming the wretchedness which affected him. He wandered into the drawing-room where was his daughter, but he could not speak to her now, so he left it, and went into the book-room. He was not quick enough to escape Eleanor's glance, or to prevent her from seeing that he was disturbed, and in a little while she followed him. She found him seated in his accustomed chair with no book open before him, no pen ready in his hand, no ill-shapen notes of blotted music lying before him as was usual, none of those hospital accounts with which he was so precise and yet so unmethodical. He was doing nothing, thinking of nothing, looking at nothing. He was merely suffering. "'Leave me, Eleanor, my dear,' he said. Leave me, my darling, for a few minutes, for I am busy. Eleanor saw well how it was, but she did leave him, and glided silently back to her drawing-room. When he had sat a while, thus alone and unoccupied, he got up to walk again. 
he could make more of his thoughts walking than sitting and was creeping out into his garden when he met bunce on the threshold well bunce said he in a tone that for him was sharp what is it do you want me i was only coming to ask after your reverence said the old beadsman touching his hat and to inquire about the news from london he added after a pause the warden winced and put his hand to his forehead and felt bewildered attorney finney has been here this morning continued bunce and by his looks i guess he is not so well pleased as he once was and it has got abroad somehow that the archdeacon has had down great news from london and handy and moody are both as black as devils and i hope said the man trying to assume a cheery tone that things are looking up that there'll be an end soon to all this stuff which bothers your reverence so sorely well i wish there may be bunce but about the news your reverence said the old man almost whispering mr harding walked on and shook his head impatiently poor bunce little knew how he was tormenting his patron if there was anything to cheer you i should be glad to know it said he with a tone of affection which the warden in all his misery could not resist he stopped and took both the old man's hands in his my friend said he my dear old friend there is nothing there is no news to cheer me god's will be done and two small hot tears broke away from his eyes and stole down his furrowed cheeks then god's will be done said the other solemnly but they told me that there was good news from london and i came to wish your reverence joy but god's will be done and so the warden again walked on and the beadsman looking wistfully after him and receiving no encouragement to follow returned sadly to his own abode for a couple of hours the warden remained thus in the garden now walking now standing motionless on the turf and then as his legs got weary sitting unconsciously on the garden seats and then walking again and eleanor hidden behind the muslin curtains of the window watched him through the trees as he now came in sight and then again was concealed by the turnings of the walk and thus the time passed away till five when the warden crept back to the house and prepared for dinner it was but a sorry meal the demure parlour-maid as she handed the dishes and changed the plates saw that all was not right and was more demure than ever neither father nor daughter could eat and the hateful food was soon cleared away and the bottle of port placed upon the table would you like bunce to come in papa said eleanor thinking that the company of the old man might lighten his sorrow no my dear thank you not to-day but are you not going out eleanor this lovely afternoon don't stay in for me my dear i thought you seemed so sad papa sad said he irritated well people must all have their share of sadness here i am not more exempt than another but kiss me dearest and go now i will if possible be more sociable when you return and eleanor was again banished from her father's sorrow ah her desire now was not to find him happy but to be allowed to share his sorrows not to force him to be sociable but to persuade him to be trustful she put on her bonnet as desired and went up to mary bold 
this was now her daily haunt for john bold was up in london among lawyers and church reformers diving deep into other questions than that of the wardenship of barchester supplying information to one member of parliament and dining with another subscribing to funds for the abolition of clerical incomes and seconding at that great national meeting at the crown and anchor a resolution to the effect that no clergyman of the church of england be he who he might should have more than a thousand a year and none less than two hundred and fifty his speech on this occasion was short for fifteen had to speak and the room was hired for two hours only at the expiration of which the quakers and mr cobden were to make use of it for an appeal to the public in aid of the emperor of russia but it was sharp and effective at least he was told so by a companion with whom he now lived much and on whom he greatly depended one tom towers a very leading genius and supposed to have high employment on the staff of the jupiter so eleanor as was now her wont went up to mary bold and mary listened kindly while the daughter spoke much of her father and perhaps kinder still found a listener in eleanor while she spoke about her brother in the meantime the warden sat alone leaning on the arm of his chair he had poured out a glass of wine but had done so merely from habit for he left it untouched there he sat gazing at the open window and thinking if he can be said to have thought of the happiness of his past life all manner of past delights came before his mind which at the time he had enjoyed without considering them his easy days his absence of all kind of hard work his pleasant shady home those twelve old neighbors whose welfare till now had been the source of so much pleasant care the excellence of his children the friendship of the dear old bishop the solemn grandeur of those vaulted aisles through which he loved to hear his own voice pealing and then that friend of friends that choice ally that had never deserted him that eloquent companion that would always when asked discourse such pleasant music that violoncello of his ah how happy he had been but it was over now his easy days and absence of work had been the crime which brought on him his tribulation his shady home was pleasant no longer maybe it was no longer his the old neighbors whose welfare had been so desired by him were his enemies his daughter was as wretched as himself and even the bishop was made miserable by his position he could never again lift up his voice boldly as he had hitherto done among his brethren for he felt that he was disgraced and he feared even to touch his bow for he knew how grievous a sound of wailing how piteous a lamentation it would produce he was still sitting in the same chair and the same posture having hardly moved a limb for two hours when eleanor came back to tea and succeeded in bringing him with her into the drawing-room the tea seemed as comfortless as the dinner though the warden who had hitherto eaten nothing all day devoured the plateful of bread and butter unconscious of what he was doing Eleanor had made up her mind to force him to talk to her, but she hardly knew how to commence. She must wait till the urn was gone, till the servant would no longer be coming in and out. At last everything was gone, and the drawing-room door was permanently closed. Then Eleanor, getting up and going round to her father, put her arm round his neck and said, "'Papa, won't you tell me what it is?' "'What what is, my dear?' 
this new sorrow that torments you. I know you are unhappy, Papa. New sorrow. It's no new sorrow, my dear. We all have our cares sometimes. And he tried to smile, but it was a ghastly failure. But I shouldn't be so dull a companion. Come, we'll, we'll have some music. No, Papa, not tonight. It would only trouble you tonight. And she sat upon his knee, as she sometimes would in their gayest moods, and with her arm around his neck, she said, Papa, I will not leave you till you talk to me. Oh, if you only knew how much good it would do to you to tell me of it all. The father kissed his daughter and pressed her to his heart, but still he said nothing. It was so hard to him to speak of his own sorrows. He was so shy a man, even with his own child. Oh, Papa, do tell me what it is. I know it is about the hospital and what they're doing up in London and what that cruel newspaper has said. But if there be such cause for sorrow, let us be sorrowful together. We are all in all to each other now. Dear, dear Papa, do speak to me. Mr. Harding could not well speak now, for the warm tears were running down his cheeks like rain in May, but he held his child close to his heart and squeezed her hand as a lover might, and she kissed his forehead and his wet cheeks and lay upon his bosom and comforted him as a woman only can do. My own child, he said, as soon as his tears would let him speak. My own, own child. Why should you too be unhappy before it is necessary? It may come to that, that we must leave this place, but till that time comes, why should your young days be clouded? And is that all, Papa? If that be all, let us leave it, and have light hearts elsewhere. If that be all, let us go. Oh, Papa, you and I could be happy if we only had bread to eat, so long as our hearts were light. And Eleanor's face was lighted up with enthusiasm as she told her father how he might banish all his care, and a gleam of joy shot across his brow as this idea of escape again presented itself, and he again fancied for a moment that he could spurn away from him the income which the world envied him, that he could give the lie to that wielder of the tomahawk who had dared to write such things of him in the Jupiter, that he could leave Sir Abraham and the Archdeacon and Bold and the rest of them with their lawsuit among them, and wipe his hands altogether of so sorrow-stirring a concern. Ah, what happiness might there be in the distance, with Eleanor and him in some small cottage, and nothing left of their former grandeur but their music. Yes, they would walk forth with their music-books and their instruments, and shaking the dust from off their feet as they went, leave the ungrateful place. Never did a poor clergyman sigh for a warm benefice, more anxiously than our warden did now to be rid of his. "'Give it up, Papa,' she said again, jumping from his knees and standing on her feet before him, looking boldly into his face. "'Give it up, Papa.' Oh, it was sad to see how that momentary gleam of joy passed away how the look of hope was dispersed from that sorrowful face as the remembrance of the archdeacon came back upon our poor warden, and he reflected that he could not stir from his now hated post. He was as a man bound with iron, fettered with adamant. He was in no respect a free agent. He had no choice. Give it up! Oh, if he only could! 
what an easy way that were out of all his troubles papa don't doubt about it she continued thinking that his hesitation arose from his unwillingness to abandon so comfortable a home is it on my account that you would stay here do you think that i cannot be happy without a pony carriage and a fine drawing-room papa i never can be happy here as long as there's a question as to your honour in staying here but i could be gay as the day is long in the smallest tiny little cottage if i could see you come in and go out with a light heart oh papa your face tells so much though you won't speak to me with your voice i know how it is with you every time i look at you how he pressed her to his heart again with almost a spasmodic pressure how he kissed her as the tears fell like rain from his old eyes how he blessed her and called her by a hundred soft sweet names which now came new to his lips how he chid himself for ever having been unhappy with such a treasure in his house such a jewel on his bosom with so sweet a flower in the choice garden of his heart and then the floodgates of his tongue were loosed and at length with unsparing detail of circumstances he told her all that he wished and all that he could not do he repeated those arguments of the archdeacon not agreeing in their truth but explaining his inability to escape from them how it had been declared to him that he was bound to remain where he was by the interests of his order by gratitude to the bishop by the wishes of his friends by a sense of duty which though he could not understand it he was fain to acknowledge he told her how he had been accused of cowardice and though he was not a man to make much of such a charge before the world now in the full candour of his heart he explained to her that such an accusation was grievous to him that he did think it would be unmanly to desert his post merely to escape his present sufferings and that therefore he must bear as best he might the misery which was prepared for him and did she find these details tedious oh no she encouraged him to dilate on every feeling he expressed till he laid bare the inmost corners of his heart to her they spoke together of the archdeacon as two children might of a stern unpopular but still respected schoolmaster and of the bishop as a parent kind as kind could be but powerless against an omnipotent pedagogue and then when they had discussed all this when the father had told all to the child she could not be less confiding than he had been and as john bold's name was mentioned between them she owned how well she had learned to love him had loved him once she said but she would not could not do so now no even had her troth been plighted to him she would have taken it back again had she sworn to love him as his wife she would have discarded him and not felt herself forsworn when he proved himself the enemy of her father but the warden declared that bold was no enemy of his and encouraged her love and gently rebuked as he kissed her the stern resolve she had made to cast him off and then he spoke to her of happier days when their trials would all be over and declared that her young heart should not be torn asunder to please either priest or prelate dean or archdeacon no not if all oxford were to convocate together and agree as to the necessity of the sacrifice and so they greatly comforted each other and in what sorrow will not such mutual confidence give consolation 
and with a last expression of tender love they parted, and went comparatively happy to their rooms. End of chapter 10 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.